one evening late, I get this call and it's from the mayor's office. And this woman is telling me the mayor is looking to hire someone to run the Chicago Arts Council. Would you be interested and would you submit your resume? And I'm like, what? This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Today, friends, we are joined by Madeline Murphy Rabb, who is a powerhouse woman. I wanted to have her on the podcast because she and I have been working together for the last couple of years. I've been coaching her on her memoir, which is incredible. And it just felt like a story I didn't want to keep to myself. I wanted everyone (laughs) to know about this story. And so Madeline in her memoir talks about her journey as an artist, also as an arts activist. And part of it talks about what we're seeing as the Black Art Matters movement. And so today we're going to cover a lot of ground. And in her personal life, she recently got married. And we're going to talk (laughs) about that too. So without further ado, welcome, Madeline. Thank you, Nadine. It's always a delight to talk to you. And thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So why don't you bring us back to when you were a kid and let us know the kind of family that you grew up in and how art started becoming important in your life? Well, I grew up in the 50s and 60s in segregated Baltimore. My parents were both well-educated. My father became a beloved municipal court judge. My mother was a journalist and an artist who I encouraged to go back to school when she was 60. So I grew up in a house with both a father who was more inclined to want his children to be lawyers or entrepreneurs and a mother who valued and respected the arts. And so there was space in our home for being a bit of both. But when it came to my college education, my father was not happy when I decided after I nearly flunked out after two years in business school at the University of Maryland and wanted to to go to art school, he was like, how the hell are you going to make a living as an artist? (laughs) (laughs) And I think part part of my memoir talks about this, you know, this drive to prove that I could, in fact, make a living. But my family were nonconformists. My father was from an upper class black family. His grandfather founded the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper. And his mother's uh, parents owned a very successful catering company. And they served mostly the white landed gentry of Baltimore. And my mother's family were educators and part of the Underground Railroad movement and painters and artists. And so it was this interesting kind of dynamic between my parents. 
Mm-hmm. And what's so amazing to see knowing your story is really how you did blend the two being an yeah. artist and yeah. an entrepreneur. <laughs> I know. I know. My father loved to take credit for the fact that I w- became a very successful businesswoman because I went to the University of Maryland Business School. I was like, yeah, right, dad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's talk about this. So you come to him, you say, I want to go to art school. He's mm-hmm. not that happy about it. But there was something in you that kept pushing ahead. There is a, a determination within you that is palpable anytime anyone talks to you and, and when in the near hopeful future people read your memoir, right? There's this determination in you. So walk us through those early adult years, going to college and then getting married, having kids, but yet prioritizing your art. What did that look like? Well, my happiest years were when I was at the Maryland Institute. I was there for three years and I discovered that I was a painter and that I could draw and that, that I was good at it. So I, I just, I soared it. I think it just saved my life, you know? And so I decided to get married. I met a man who swept me off my feet, who uh, was older than I, who convinced me to marry him. And I graduated from Maryland Institute on one day and got married two days later and moved from Baltimore to Chicago. And as with many artists, women who get married and leave art school, you leave this this wonderful, secure bubble where you are nurtured and you have a place to work and your time is respected because everybody's making art and that's what you do. And then when you're dropped out of school and suddenly you have to figure out, okay, so how do you have a practice as an artist? What is it that you do, you know? And um, I didn't have a studio. I didn't have a support system. Although I did discover the Hyde Park Art Center and the Southside Community Art Center and develop relationships with a white institution and a black institution. And I took classes at both places. And then soon I, um, I had my first child within two years of getting married. And so that changed the dynamic. And how do you how do you do all those things? My husband was developing a very important practice as an ophthalmologist. And in those years, it was really tough for black men generally and physicians to find their way in an integrated hospital situation. And so he's dealing with the politics and the racism of becoming a physician. I'm dealing with the isolation of being an artist without a real studio and a young mother. So it was challenging to do it. But I held forth because I started taking classes. And ultimately, after having two kids, after studying painting with a a teacher at the Hyde Park Art Center, she encouraged me to go to graduate school. She said, you know, you should study printmaking. It would support your painting. It would make it, it would be a nice compliment to it. And so I, <laughs> I, I couldn't take classes without being a full-time student. 
for printmaking, it was in the graduate school at the Illinois Institute of Technology. It happened to be one of the most impressive printmaking programs in the country. Mm. Mitch Cohn ran that program. And on a whim, I applied. And of course, with my University of Maryland average, (laughs) which was dismal, (laughs) and my really good grades at Maryland, I had this sort of mediocre, you know, grade point average, right? So I didn't, wasn't very optimistic that I'd get in grad school. So one day I was on the, I was picking up the mail with my little toddlers and I opened the mailbox and there is a letter of acceptance Mm. from the Illinois Institute of Technology. And I freak out And there happens to be a woman who was a friend, uh, an older woman who lived in my building. And she said, Madeline, what's the matter with you? (laughs) I I just got accepted in the grad school and Maurice is going to kindergarten and Christopher isn't toilet trained. And I, I, (laughs) she said, pull yourself together. You can do this. And she was married to a physician and she had essentially allowed herself to be subsumed under being a Mrs. Doctor. And I think she saw hope and didn't want me to do that. Do you know what I mean? I think she was like, you can do this. So I came upstairs and announced to my husband, Maurice, I got accepted at at, at grad school. Grad school? When did you apply? Oh, um, a few months ago, but I didn't think I was going to get in. So I did. I soared in grad school. I developed a whole unique process for printmaking. And oh, I was so proud of myself. And once again, you know, I left grad school. And and with printmaking, you absolutely have to have a place to make prints. It's messy. It's it requires machinery. It is expensive, you know. So once again, it's like, okay, what am I going to do? And um, I managed to work with a couple of printmaking places, and I exhibited my art. I sold to some collectors, and and Maurice used to go to the National Medical Association every year. And I hated it because I I didn't conform to any of the other doctor's wives. You know, they were all very correct, and they were very invested in being doctor's wives. Not everybody. I'm making a broad generalization, but many of them were. And so I really didn't fit in. And so uh, I told Maurice, I'm not going to another National Medical Association meeting unless I can bring art to sell. (laughs) He was mortified. How de classe. He could just envision me sitting somewhere schlepping paintings and stuff. Well, he had a connection and he knew I was serious because he liked me to be there with him. And he was able, God bless him, to negotiate with the people who ran the convention center where all the all the equipment, medical equipment. Traditionally, women and artisans would exhibit in this off-site place among a bunch of tchotchkes and clothes and plastic purses and all kinds of terrible stuff. And I had no desire to be part of that. Mm-hmm. I said, I want to be around people who are serious and who would collect art. And for, I don't know, four, five, six years, I had this tiny little booth in the midst of 
pharmaceuticals and equipment. <laughs> and there I sat selling prints and paintings, and I developed a loyal following. And after every convention, I made enough money to pay my rent at a studio. Mm, that is what I love. You have a million moments in your memoir <laughs> about this sheer determination. My grandmother, who is a really powerful woman, but who I think as you were talking about like this, that she was in the home and she wasn't able to be out in the world professionally. So she really, really encouraged my mother and I to pursue our dreams professionally. And so my grandmother used to always say, when there's a will, there's a way. And that's my mother's expression. (laughs) Yes. Throughout your Uh entire book, you talk about finding ways to work as an artist, to have studio time. And some of my favorite moments from your book are about finding a little studio space and just kind of slyly, casually mentioning to your husband, like, oh yeah, I'm just going to have this, this little space and just knowing, but graciously, there was like a, a way of stating what you wanted and getting that and pursuing that, but also trying to navigate the waters of also being a partner and a parent. So One of my favorite moments is when you talk about going on what I think was like a six week residency, which is (laughs) so hard as a parent and a, and a partner, but it's like, you're going. (laughs) Yeah. My mother was my partner in crime. I mean, she would send me brochures from the Maryland Institute that came to the house and she would always say, well, you need to go to one of those retreats. You need to get away from the family. You need time alone. You need to do this, that, and the other. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. So one year she sent me one and my favorite painting teacher, Raul Middleman, was teaching a six-week landscape painting workshop in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And I was like, oh, my God, I could go back in time. This would be wonderful. And my boys were like 14 and 16, maybe something like that. So this was like I got the brochure in February and I signed up for it. Now, I learned that never broadcast what I'm going to do because my family always had a way of sabotaging it, you know. <laughs> so I learned to have stealth. I was very, very about stealth. So, it, you know, the time is getting closer and closer. For You know, I was very fortunate. We had a housekeeper and we were, you know, we led a good life. And so I, I, had, I had certain luxuries, but I also had to fight for my independence all the time. So... About four weeks before, no, it wasn't even that many weeks, about three weeks before I was supposed to be driving off to Pennsylvania for a six-week workshop, I announced it to my husband. (laughs) He says, what? What? I said, oh, honey, listen, 
you know, I, I just think it's so important for me professionally. You know how you go to meetings and I always support you and blah, blah. Well, this is different. This is six weeks for heaven's sake. Well, I've worked it out with a housekeeper. I said, the boys are going to be going, one's going to camp and the other, one, you know, and I had it all laid out. Every objection he had, I had pre, I had thought of an answer. And so the day before I was to leave, his mother drove up from Louisville, Kentucky. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> what is she going to say? And my kids were excited because they said, oh, grandma's going to come and she's going to stay and blah, blah, blah. Turns out my mother-in-law came up to wish me well. Aww. And she and she saw me off with the family and then she left. <laughs> 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 and they were like, what? This feminist group of women they were surrounded with. So I loaded my car up with canvas and gesso and paint. I had an outdoor easel. And my older son, Maurice, said, Mom, this car is a mess. He repacked my car. God bless him. I'll never forget that. And off I drove. I was like fleeing. I was so <laughs> excited. I was on my own and it was like a 12 hour drive. And for six weeks, I painted my butt off and I returned home. My car was overflowing. I made about 30 paintings and my boys unloaded the car and they were astonished, even though they knew I was an artist and they, you know, I had art, my art around the house. All of a sudden, seeing this huge body of work was like, Mom, you're amazing. And they began separating paintings that each of them wanted. Mm, <laughs> so I love was, that. And it was affirming for everyone. It, it gave me the respect. It was about respect. Mm -hmm. that I got from my family and yeah. it, it was a very good it was a good decision it was good for our marriage it was good for my sons mm -hmm. yeah I like to think a lot you know as a working artist as well I, and many of the women listening are working artists or they're juggling parenting and art or being a partner in art it's such a hard space to be in because you want to keep creating and yet you don't want family members to be resentful of your art. But I have found that when our people witness us creating, producing in the flow, they do develop that level of respect and they begin to see how important that creative expression is to us. And rather than seeing it as something that takes us away from them, they begin to see it as something that fulfills us so that when we come back to our people, we are replenished. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's scary to buck your family, you know what I mean? Or mm. to use subterfuge, you know. And my mother always gave me this advice. Sometimes you have to keep your own counsel. Mm. You have to listen to your heart. You have to know what your priorities are. And you have to risk making your family uncomfortable or annoyed. But that's the only way that you 
you can ground yourself as an artist. You just have to be resolute. And they will come around, particularly when they see your work and when they're like, my mother's an artist and blah, blah, blah. I remember listening to Christopher with his friends and he gave a whole lecture on art and he was talking about my paintings, which were hanging in the house. I almost wept because I didn't even know he noticed. You know what I mean? And years later, the same young man came to a sale, an art sale that I had. I had this big uh, downsizing sale a year ago. He had been buying some things from me, but he couldn't afford them. And these were much less expensive. And he said he always remembered being in our house that was filled with art and he wanted his children to grow up with art and he bought a lot of my paintings it was it was very moving Mm. so you don't know the power that you have as an artist Mm -hmm. and um, and the pleasure and joy and respect that people have for you that you don't even know you know yes I like to think about the question you know what are people witnessing of you What are they observing about you? It's like we sometimes forget that our our children or our neighbors, whoever comes to our house, they're they're like sponges and they witness and Mm -hmm. they observe. And so sometimes it is helpful to think about from an objective perspective, what do you want people to witness of you? You know, do you want them to see you being creative? Do you want them to, to know you? as what roles, what roles do you want them to know you as? And if art and creativity is important to you, are you actually doing it and creating it, Mm -hmm. right? It's one thing to have it in your heart that it's important to you, but to act on it and then have your people witness it is really moving. And I wanted to ask you about a really important time in your life where you not only were an artist, but you really got into the activist role. So you worked under Mayor Harold Washington in Chicago. I want you to talk about that and how you really started getting eyeballs on other artists. Yeah, there came a point when I was in my studio that I felt very isolated And as much as I enjoyed creating art, I didn't have a means of getting it out there because in the 60s and early 70s, there were not a lot of opportunities for Black women artists to exhibit or to have representation. And so, you know, I was also very practical. Here I had all this inventory. What was I going to do with it? And And even though I was working selling art. I was very entrepreneurial about selling my art to collectors. Um, It just wasn't satisfying getting the kind of professional recognition that I was seeing others get. And I just knew I didn't have the patience for it. And then there was something else that was calling me because I come from this family of of activists who who are change makers, who are upsetting the status quo. And Harold Washington announced that he was going to run for mayor. And he was an outsider. And nobody believed that he could win election as the first black mayor of Chicago. And I got very excited about his campaign. I worked with artists for Washington. I lent my paintings to his headquarters. I helped draft 
the manifesto to create a department of cultural affairs and to make it a cabinet level position. And, and so I was very involved in his election and I also raised money for him. My husband and I hosted a big fundraiser at my initiation because I was more political than my husband. He, he went along with me. (laughs) And so we had this huge fundraiser in our house and, and raised significant money. And it was a time when a lot of middle-class black people were not supporting him. They didn't know him. They didn't think he could win. And they did not want to stick their neck out to support this unknown politician to some of them and risk being on the outside if he lost. Mm. And I had nothing to lose. I had nothing to lose. And I was raised (laughs) giving money to candidates and supporting them early. And so I had this fundraiser before the uh, primary, and he ultimately went on to win. And I was just so excited and so proud. And I did it because it was what I did. That was the way I was raised. You participate and you become, if there's a problem, you're part of the solution. So a few months later, in the meantime, I had told a number of my friends that I wanted a job. I wanted to get out of my studio. I just wanted I knew I had another calling. And lo and behold, one evening late, I get this call. And it's from the mayor's office. And this woman is telling me, the mayor is looking to hire someone to run the Chicago Arts Council. Would you be interested and would you submit your resume? And I'm like, what? (laughs) And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I didn't say that to her, but I was thinking and I was just very quiet and I took a deep gulp and I said, "Mm, okay, (laughs) I'll do that. (laughs) Well, I had been very active on a lot of arts boards, black and white. I was one of the early members of the Women's Board of the Museum of Contemporary Art. I helped with the founding and early years of the uh, DuSable Museum. I was deeply entrenched. And Maurice saw me after I saw me and said, Dad, what was that? I had my the covers over my head. <laughs> I said it was the mayor's office. They want me to apply for this position uh, in the Arts Council. He said, that's great. I said, oh, no, Maurice, I can't do that. I've never run an Arts Council. <laughs> he said, so what's the worst that could happen if you try if you apply? And so it took maybe six, eight months before I heard back. <laughs> it was like, and I'd given up. That's when I went to go paint. You know, mm-hmm. I took that six painting thing. And I get a call the week of Thanksgiving from the mayor's office. And I'm like, oh my God. And I start cramming and you know, if I got this job, I would do X, Y, and Z and blah, blah, blah. You know, I was like, I was ready. And I didn't tell Maurice I had the interview because he would have made me nuts. He would have made me (laughs) a nervous wreck. So I walk into his office and Bill Ware, his chief of staff is there. And my sister worked with Harold Washington and Bill Ware on the voting rights bill. My sister is a huge civil rights activist. And so there were relationships 
that surrounded me and, and Harold Washington that were significant, but still, you know, mm-hmm. a job like this. So, you know, I sit down, I'm barely sitting down before he says, Mrs. Rob, when can you start? I'm like, what? <laughs> when can I start? I thought this was an interview, you know, among some other candidates. He said, no, I would like to hire you to run the Arts Council. And then he says, but I know you'll have to ask your husband. And I was like, are you kidding? I mean, I just, my shoulders went back and I said, I can start next week. (laughs) (laughs) And I walked out of that office, my knees were like jelly. And it was like, what have I just gotten into? (laughs) And I came home and Maurice, my older son, was at in college, he was in California at Stanford, and Christopher was still in high school. And I came home to Christopher and my husband, and I said, guess what? And they looked at me like, what's going on? I said, I just got a job with Harold Washington. And all hell broke loose. They were so excited. They were so proud. They were like, wow. And I took that job in 1983, and he had a very clear mandate. And that was the other thing I loved about Harold Washington. He was very clear. He was devoted to the community. He wanted the arts to be inclusive. And many, many community arts organizations didn't get funding from the Arts Council because they were overlooked, you know. And and in the process, over nine years... I had the privilege of developing a much broader approach to supporting arts and more inclusive and more diverse. And it was tough to do this because I was going against the status quo. I was going against people who believed that if a minority was doing something, it could not be of the same quality as a white artist. I mean, it was it was overt. It was explicit. It was challenging. And I had this amazing opportunity because I had this big job. I was over 25 art exhibits a year. I was over grant making, public art, public programs. So I was able to have an impact on every aspect of the arts and to bring a board to bring along a staff, a mostly white staff, and then as I was there, a more integrated staff to understand the value of inclusiveness, the value of different points of view, mm-hmm. and to understand, you know, that that they had existed in a bubble and that there were other artists out there who deserved opportunities. So I was pretty relentless. I got the not very affectionate moniker of Ms. Cultural Diversity because I had this, um, every time we'd have a meeting or a project, there was a matrix, you know, okay, so we've got to look at the neighborhoods, we've got to look women, race, ward, blah, blah, blah. And I worked very closely with the city councilmen to make sure that they knew what was going on in their community. So I developed allies, you know, because they began to see the benefit of the, of the work we were doing, mm-hmm. but it was tough. It was tough. 
Yeah. I had some controversies. Yeah, I'm sure like, the mayor had moments where he said, geez, what else is she going to do over there to raise hell? <laughs> but this is where I see the beauty in your story that your upbringing and your activist parents like this, all of these threads, the entrepreneurism, the artist in you, the activist family you grew up in, it's like they all of those threads come together as you're talking about the really impactful work that you were doing. Mm-hmm. Go well, ahead. that gave me a certain fearlessness because I remember we, oh, we had people picketing a, a, a show we were doing and my my staff were, you know, sort of defensive and they, and they didn't want to talk to the people. I said, oh, bring them in. I'll talk to them, you know, because I used to be on the other side picketing City Hall with my mother being a rabble rouser mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to challenge, you know, racism and the status quo and all that kind of thing in Baltimore. So I was used to causing trouble. <laughs> and so I was not afraid. And I knew the tactics that people use to intimidate public officials. Mm-hmm. So I was yeah, they they don't know who they're kid. They listen. I'm not afraid of them, you know. And I developed alliances, and I developed credibility among a lot of community organizations. So, because I was authentic, and I wasn't afraid. Yes. And then after you left that position, you did your own consulting, and your mission continuously was to get black artists recognized and your Mm -hmm. work has created so much impact for so many artists. So I know you kind of recently re came out of retirement, (laughs) but kind of fill (laughs) us in on, on the years after your time with mayor Harold Washington. Well, I got tired of being on these committees where, you know, nobody would listen to the artists I was putting forth because I don't, I never heard of them. Are they qualified? And blah, 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 blah. I even developed the top 10 reasons for not including culture diversity because I was doing these uh, diversity workshops, you know, and I, I was like, I kept hearing the same old excuses, you know. So anyway, I developed a practice where it was very clear what I wanted to do. I wanted to develop collectors who were stewards and guardians of the work of African-American artists. And people always said, well, why don't you represent white artists? I said, because they have a bigger support system and black artists don't. And this is my personal passion. And I know the challenges that my own great aunt had getting recognition in the 40s, 30s and 40s as a classically trained artist. Mm. And so I decided to work with black businesses, wealthy black businesses. And I convinced many of them that they needed to have important collections in their offices. And certainly you had to be concerned about the kinds of images that you used. And many people assume that everything is by a Black artist is a Black subject. You know, the diversity of points of view and medium and everything is just extraordinary among Black artists as it is with white artists. So I was able to build some beautiful corporate collections. And then often the client would ask me to help them build their private collections, which could be much more personal, much more political. So 
I did that for 35 years and I just loved it because in those days, you know, there still weren't a lot of black galleries and dealers were not taking on African-American artists. And so I had to find these amazing artists who had been, many of them working years and years doing extraordinary work, some with representation, some without. And I developed this huge list of artists from all over the country. And I would travel to their studios. And if they were represented, I would see their dealers. I would see their work in exhibitions. And I'd find artists. And I'd see them. I found this one artist in an exhibit. And I just loved her work. And I pursued her for years. She was in graduate school. And she was always, no, I don't have anything. No, I'm not interested in selling, blah, blah, blah. And finally, we became good friends, and I put her work in a lot of my collections. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and now that I look back at many of the artists, you know, so I had this double job. I was working on for my clients, but many of the artists didn't know how to price their work. Some of it was crazy. You know, they, it didn't warrant the kinds of prices that they thought they deserved. And, you know, so I was like counseling them about this is realistic and this mm-hmm. isn't. And, So I was educating artists and educating collectors. And and now I look at some of the people that I worked with in the 90s who are now trustees at the Art Institute of Chicago and the Museum of Contemporary Art and, and artists that were starving who are representing the U.S. at the Venice Biennale, two artists that I was I worked with, who have blossomed, who are getting the recognition they deserved, and who I knew, I knew they were brilliant, you know, so it's so affirming for me. It's just so affirming, and I'm just, I'm just so fortunate and so blessed to have had the privilege, and I give a lot of credit to Harold Washington for trusting me mm-hmm. and to, to give me that opportunity that then prepared and girded me and showed me the inner workings of government, the effect of a government grant on an artist that's like the good housekeeping seal of approval that then gives them other opportunities. It gets eyes on artists who would normally nobody would see when they're apply for grants and stuff. So I realized the ripple effect and it just all came together for me. So mm-hmm. I just am so, so proud. Sometimes though, I look at women my age who hung in there in their career. And I have sometimes this sort of bittersweetness, you know, like what would it have been if I had hung in there making art? And I see some of the women getting recognition that they work so hard for. Mm-hmm. And then I have to think, well, you know, I I had a different calling. Maybe, I don't know. You can't, you know, you do have your moments. And, you know, we've talked about what you write in your book, too, about recent trends that you've been seeing 
with the recognition of Black artists. And so you've talked to me about this kind of parallel movement that there's been the Black Lives Matter movement, but also what maybe some people don't realize or understand about Black Art Matters movement. Can you talk to us about Mm -hmm. that as we wrap up? Yes. um, Well, in recent years, well, I really started probably in around 2008 when the art market crashed along with everything else and dealers began scrambling to find affordable beautiful art and they they quote unquote discovered this treasure trove of of african-american artists who were just making extraordinary work and so in recent years along with the inclusion and diversity and equity movement and institutions have been getting pressure to be more inclusive in their holdings and in their staffing. And and so there has been this extraordinary growth and respect for the work of African-American artists. And the prices are just phenomenal. I mean, they are finally getting the prices for their work that they had deserved forever. And many of the artists that I worked with are part of that, part of that success. It isn't because people think, you know, it's the right thing to do. They discovered that there is a market. (laughs) There is a huge market for this work. And so we're seeing this flourishing. And we're also simultaneously seeing curators and historians, and many are women, Black women, who are doing important work in museums across the country. Many of them are still facing the same kinds of challenges that other women did before them. But I often think if only they had been around when I needed them to give mm. me, to tell me who's out there, who I should be looking at. And But yeah, so I did this for 30 some odd years. And I said, you know what? I'm tired. Let's let another generation do the work that I've been doing. And I, I stopped doing art advisory work. And I just couldn't keep up with all the new artists. And I didn't have the desire to. And I met you. And I started writing. And I discovered that I had another creative outlet that could give me a lot of joy. So I started writing. But then a year ago, a friend of mine said, you know what? I want to work with Richard Hunt. And do you know him? And I've got some people who I think would love to buy his work. And I've known Richard Hunt forever. Richard is 87 years old. Mm-hmm. And my friend and I, Morris, started representing the work of Richard Hunt. And, and that's a very interesting story because Richard is a renowned sculptor who's done commissions in practically every state in the country. And he's very low key. He has had representation. He's a very crafty individual who has learned how to navigate the art world. But he's never really gotten the recognition that he deserves. And so it has been such a joy working with him, developing new collectors for him. Mm-hmm. Not that he was wanting, but but we've taken it to a different level. And so my friend pulled, Morris pulled me out of retirement. I said, I don't want to work. <laughs> I don't need to work. But it's been such a joy working with Richard. So he's going to be honored. 
in June at the Art Institute at last as a living legend. And this is what uh, I love seeing is that you do so much. So you, you have this long career and then you go, okay, why not write a memoir? And, oh, why not come out of retirement? And you do like this competitive (laughs) swimming for the senior games. And then um, you have gotten remarried (laughs) recently. Like you are, you are living life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I am. I am. And, you know, I learned after my husband died and and I've been a widow for 17 years until I married on March 30th to a man who I had known for 50 years and his granddaughter connected us and and it was magical. And and I was a hardcore independent woman and I never wanted to be married again. And I just like I had a great life. You know, I didn't need anybody and I mm-hmm. and we connected and it was magical it was simply magical and I don't know if I could be any happier mm. so it's never too late it's never too late it's never too late to find love you just have to um I don't know what you have to do it's a matter of timing he calls it um he said it was preordained <laughs> <laughs> So what can I say? Well, I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up. Madeline, thank you so much for sharing these amazing stories from all different parts of your life with us. It's so compelling. It's so amazing to see the impact that you've had on so many artists' lives. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Nadine. And it has been a joy working with you and helping my voice you know, and so we'll see what the future holds. Who knows? Who knows what I'll be up to? But in two weeks, I'm competing at the National Senior Games. So I want to bring home the gold. (laughs) You never (laughs) cease to amaze me. (laughs) Thank you. Isn't Madeline amazing? Wow. What an awesome conversation. So I hope that if you are an artist who's juggling multiple roles, that you'll have inspiration from Madeline to make time for your art. And I also hope that this encourages you to be an advocate and an activist for other creatives as Madeline has been. Thanks everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to tag me, comment, post anything. I'm at NadineKennyJohnstone.com. Share it with a friend. It means so much to me to have the ripple effect of these amazing guests and their awesome words being spread to other people who it might have some impact on. So if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. As always, thank you to another incredible artist, Michelle Rado, who also raises the voices of other artists, in particular authors, on her podcast called Daring to Tell. And lastly, remember everyone that every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.